everyone. Today on noon, I'll be interviewing a good friend and former colleague, Ed, a dedicated paramedic who has faced unique challenges and triumphed against all odds. Join us as we delve into his extraordinary life experiences. Prepare to be inspired as Ed opens up about the obstacles he has encountered along the way and the resilience that has kept him going. We'll discover how Ed overcame his personal hurdles, including his hunting accident, and emerged stronger than ever, continuing to serve his city as a paramedic. Let's get started. All right. Welcome, Ed, to the 911 Nonsense podcast. Thanks for coming out today. If you could please just give me an introduction of yourself. My name is Ed Bras, um, paramedic here in the Albuquerque area. Um, started my career back in 2001 before 9-11 and have been working ever since. I've done pretty much everything from flight to uh, critical care to in-hospital, pre-hospital, rural, metro, basically tech med, all of it. That's really cool. I didn't know that you were working before 9-11. Do you think that that affected your career at all? I think it did for a lot of us that were the pre-9-11 EMTs because I just kind of think it solidified like a lot of our resolve that this is the career that we want, you know, um, and being part of something greater than than ourselves was really uh, made apparent and very obvious during that time. That's really cool. Do you think that it that you feel that it directly impacted you in any way? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, it just like it it really like just strengthened the, the you know this idea that this is what I'm meant to do. This is my calling. This is my purpose in life. Um, it. Uh, you know, it's, it was a, for me anyway, it was a really good start to my career because it gave me, it gave me the, the courage to keep going, even though there's, there's some adversities and, and, you know, like kind of like the shock and awe of like going from being a kid to now, you know, being in the 911 system and, you know, helping people that were older, more experienced than myself and kind of being that kind of calm in their storm of, the worst day of their life. Yeah. No, that's really cool. Um, have you always wanted to be a paramedic? Kind of. Um, when I was a little kid, like I always noticed that I always had the luck that I'd just find myself in the middle of some weird situation that was just going crazy. And I was just like looking at all these people, like adults that were just like going absolutely crazy and just like, you know, acting a fool. And I'm just like, what's the problem? Like, I don't like, I don't see why you guys are acting like this. How about we just kind of start from the basics and do simple things. And, you know, as I got older, that was like, well, I keep finding myself in this situation. Why don't I just get trained on how to deal with it? So I became an EMT, then a medic, and it just kind of, just kind of fit. Yeah, that's really cool. And have you, I know you said you've done a lot, but have you ever considered like the fire side of things? Or you just strictly EMS? I did for a little bit, but... Like before I started EMS, I was doing construction and, you know, I got to do a lot of demo, a lot of construction, worked with, you know, big boys with big toys type mm-hmm. of thing. That kind of satisfied that itch enough for me. But, you know, once I got into medicine, that was kind of the bug that bit me the hardest. And I started transitioning away from construction, even though, you know, I was getting paid a lot of really good money and had a lot of really good consistent work to going working as an EMT and be in a facility in 911 system, which, yeah. you know, like, you know how it goes. Yeah. I mean, you definitely didn't get an EMS for the money. No, no. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Yeah. As far as the medicine thing goes, I agree. I started out as a volunteer firefighter and then I became a paid firefighter at the department that I was with. And I had to go through my EMT basic class. And as soon as I took that EMT basic class, I was like, oh yeah, the medicine is where it's at. That's where I want to be. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, in all of your years in service, what would you say your like most memorable call has been? Yeah, it's it's really hard to like pick like one one thing out of all those calls and all those years. I mean, literally thousands at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a few of them that you just kind of like you actually finally get the feels. You know, like it kind of goes. You have this like dearth of like emotionless like all right this is just one same thing after you know mm-hmm. after a while um but you know it was one of the the ones that kind of sticks out at me it wasn't even really an ems call it was um because i do disaster medicine too with with the disaster uh team and 
we had this little lady. It was like, we we're out there for like floods or something. Like nobody even knew about this. Like I had, it wasn't even on my radar. It wasn't like a big hurricane or whatever. It was just floods ravaged this one area and we were out there. Mm-hmm. And this little lady, she was like, I don't know, maybe pushing 90. Um, she lost her husband. They survived the flood itself and were loaded into the rescue boats and stuff. But he ended up at the whole experience made her husband die of a heart attack. Wow. And she was in our shelter and her family was coming to go get her and we were like trying to like get her ready to you know one for her husband's funeral because this is like probably two three weeks post post disaster Mm -hmm. and so we're like you know what let's form a group we're going to take her out to one of the local barber shops or you know hairstylist places and kind of tell them hey this is what we got going on you know she she needed new clothes because she lost everything and she needed to, you know, get made up to, you know, go you know, bury her husband. Yeah. And I remember being in the back of the car with her as we're driving out. And, like, she had this one little stuffed animal that was, like, that was it. Like, that was, like, the only thing she had in the world. Aww. And it was just, like, being there for part of for that part and then getting her all dolled up and, you know, new clothes and everything and then her family picking her up. Like that, that really touched me quite a bit, considering that it really was kind of a no big deal deployment compared to some sure. of the others. Yeah, not a, not a big, big thing. No, that's really cool that you were there and you were able to help get the resources that she needed mm-hmm. in that time. And, you know, a lot of people deal with uh, death in disasters, right? That's why we have mm-hmm. these disaster teams. So that's really, it's heartwarming to know that they are going out of their way to help with resources for the people that need it like that. Cause you hear a lot about like the disasters are happening and there'll be no running water in a town. Mm-hmm. So they will be taking ice and all the, you know, all the markets and stuff are raising the price of ice to like 20 bucks a bag just because they can. Yeah. That's insane to me. That's so crazy. So how long have you been with the disaster team? It was kind of, it's kind of hard to, to give like a real good, estimate of that because like when I was applying sequestration happened all the government's shut down stuff was happening so I think from 2012 but my first deployment was out to Louisiana in 2016 oh okay and then I've been out several times a year ever since and would you say that you like that position I actually really love it like it's it in the beginning everybody was saying well this isn't a typical DMAT deployment I don't even know what it quote unquote typical deployment even looks like because yeah. all of them have been different. You know, I've gotten access to a lot of really cool stuff that, you know, non-disaster wise, because they do, you know, like huge events as well, like presidential inaugurations, like D- in Washington DC, the, the um, state of the union addresses and the fireworks, you know, some people got to go to the Pope's visit, you know, things like that. Wow. So, you know, we get, like the first, you know, front row seats to all of that is as disaster medical workers, which is really cool. That is so cool. What an experience. And how did you learn about that? I, it was something that it, like, coming from, like I was born and raised in California. And so we're masters of disaster in California. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, like I heard about these teams kind of in the back of my head, but I never really figured out and sat down how to apply and get onto a team until I came out here and yeah, here I am. <laughs> Would you say that it was a fairly easy process to get on the team? Oh, absolutely not. It was like two. It was like two years long, and it's like resubmitting paperwork and everything because it's a, it's a federal job. So, you know, there's this typical delay of of that. Plus, it's a part time per diem type of job. So it's even more of a kind of like the hiring part is on the back burner a little bit sure. more. So. And when you guys go out, like, is everything covered? Yeah. Yeah, we do, we do get paid. We get per diem and flights covered. Um, the food, they expect us to go out with like 72 hours worth of, to be self-sufficient for about 72 hours. And, you know, for the most part, most of us, like, that, I've, I've never had to push that limit. It's mostly just been like maybe 24 at most. Sure. Just a just-in-case kind of yeah. thing. And have you ever been put in a situation with the disaster team that maybe made you feel a little unsafe? Oh, yeah. Um, when, we got, when we all got deployed to Puerto Rico, there was a lot of security concerns. Um, there was a lot of um, people kind of testing the waters and kind of seeing, because 
you know, P- Puerto Rico, because it was an island, getting stuff there was extraordinarily difficult. Yeah. You know, like things like, you know, oil for your car or for the generators that had been running for the last month. Like, there was no way to get those on the island. So here we are with a cache of supplies that was guarded by, you know, like different different federal law enforcement agencies. Um, but then after a little while, they turned and switched to local contractors, which was like, oh, Okay, well, <laughs> let's make sure we make friends with these shady. people. Yeah, yeah. Um, which the guys were great, at least out in, in the area that I was deployed to. Like they were absolutely wonderful. But you know, you hear about like other other what they call them booze or base of operations um, that were getting like some people that were like making up fake IDs to try to say like, oh, so and so said that I could have that big box of supplies over there. Oh my goodness! So that's crazy. Ah, that what a cool adventure too, though. Like being in a different place and not really knowing people, and having to go out and basically befriend everybody and hope that they all have your best interest in mind while you're trying oh, yeah. to have <laughs> everybody else's <laughs> best interest in mind. That's really cool. Um, what have you do? What have you been doing more recently? I know you you've gotten into some hobbies lately. Hobby wise, to I kind of do a lot of like. A long time ago, a mentor of mine was like, "Why well, know a lot about a little when you can know a lot about a lot?" Mm-hmm. So, which only gave me free agency to do the hyperfixation thing and go from one hobby to another. But they're all kind of coming together. Um, like right now, I'm doing beekeeping, and that kind of landed in my lap. What a cool hobby! <laughs> it, it really is. Um, you know, like I went from having like two hives to now having 23 of my own and helping a commercial beekeeper to kind of get my skills and everything going and how much space do you need for 23 hives that seems like uh, a lot luckily i i'm very lucky because my original mentor kind of let me step into his footprint because he oh, moved okay. out of state and so i basically i took over his business i bought him out and like i have all of his same contracts so like all my stuff is in an alfalfa field right now out in uh, the east area mm-hmm. where there's like farmland and stuff like that and things for them to pollinate and you know, gather nectar and produce honey. Um, for 23 hives, you know, the, the bees, they'll range like three miles to go foraging. Wow. So, you know, they, they, they're the ones that do all the work for the most part. <laughs> all the hard work. You just get to collect the best part, right? Yeah. You know, and <laughs> just make sure that they're healthy and that they're getting the resources they need and they're, everything is kind of moving on the timeline that they have and the queen is healthy and she's laying eggs and, um, you know, each, each box that you open, each frame of bees that you look at is like a different puzzle. And that's kind of what's really intriguing. Plus the white noise of all the buzzing that's going on around Constantly. you. Uh-huh. Like it just, there's something real cathartic about just like, you know, you're just kind of doing your Zen thing. It's, it's really hard to worry about the future or dwell on the past when it's like, everything is like right now. Cause They'll feel you too. Like if you're going too fast, they ain't going to like it. They'll start buzzing a little bit harder the faster you're going. So, you know, like everything just has to be just as so, as, you know, so everybody's happy. Otherwise, you'll probably end up getting stung. Which, yeah, that's which crazy. Happens. Do you wear the suit when oh, you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Some people, you see those videos on, you know, the social media apps that, where people just go out and all they'll have on is the hood. Oh, yeah. And that's insane. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> Especially when you see, you know, how many people are allergic to bees and mm-hmm. people who are allergic to bees and don't realize it until they're stung by bees. There is that. Yeah. Luckily, I am not. Well, that's good. <laughs> That'd be a higher risk position for you, I think, if that was the case. That's awesome, dude. Um, so do you feel comfortable talking about um, any of the bad calls that you had? Oh, yeah. The, the only, But the only caveat is that I have a pretty significant mental block with a lot of them. Um, just with... You know, the generation of that I was brought up in in the in the system was still like we we're kinda like accepting that calls affect you, but mm-hmm. we still weren't talking about it. Yes. And resiliency was the key. You know, like, yes, this I can agree. affect you, but you need to learn how to deal with it. Yes. Um, which for most of us, what it just meant suppress and put it down you know put it in a box then put that in another box and just you know then smash (laughs) it keep keep it going yeah so um a lot of a lot of those bad calls and stuff i don't 
I don't really remember, unfortunately, which is really sad because, you know, I'm a bit of a workaholic, so I'll work like 60 hours a week and not even think twice about it. Like that's, that's a slow week for me. And I'm not remembering 60 hours every week no. over the course of the 20 year career like that, that there's kind of a problem there. Yeah, no, <laughs> that, it was a lot. And especially when you're given all the opportunity for overtime mm-hmm. is in a 911 system like there typically is, you know, we work way more than 60 hours sometimes. Yeah. And that can be a little much. Is there any call that sticks out in particular when people walk up and they're like, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? Oh, well, my answer to that question is always human nature. Human nature. (laughs) That's a good one. I always tell people, you know, the worst thing I've seen is when you pull up next to somebody and they're they're knuckle deep into their nose, you know, and you're just (laughs) looking at them and they don't care because they're sitting in their car and you just can't, they won't stop until the green, the green or the light's green, you know, and then they take off. It's, that's funny. It's really funny. (laughs) Um, Would you say that you have any like stories with your partner that you would share like good times or bad times even maybe didn't get along with your partner or well I mean I've you know like with with partners that are like that I don't get along with you know like I'll try to figure out a way to work with them you know Mm -hmm. because your your partner you know it's I don't really like the term work wife work husband but it really is that Mm -hmm. like you you guys are trauma bonded and just you go through the ringer with each other you got to be able to work with each other and so you know, trying to find a common ground and stuff like that. You know, I, I've been for the most part, pretty successful with, with them, um, with ones that weren't my favorite, but you know, it's, you know, when you get a good partner, you know, like I've heard on some of your other shows, it's like, that's gold. It's like you, you hold gold. on to them for as long as you can. Yeah. That can make or break your whole shift. Yeah. Your whole year, depending on how long you're with that person. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But, you know, I tend to get, you know, most of my time in, in EMS, I've been training people too. So um, I guess that I've been unofficially voted by my higher ups that I have a little bit more patience than some of the other mm-hmm. FTOs that are out there. So because, I'll, you know, I really want everybody to succeed that's on the truck. Yeah. You know, uh, if you put in the effort, I'm going to match it, you know, and however long it takes, if we need to stay after and do skills, if we need to do studying, if we need to do, you know, do concepts or A&P, whatever. You know, because part of it's, it's a learning experience for me too. You know, yeah. I've forgotten a lot of stuff because I'm not, I'm not the smartest toolbox, you know, tool in, in the toolbox. <laughs> we but just work a little harder. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, um, you know, some, some of my partners I've had to work on emotional intelligence a little bit more than others so sure. that they don't set off my psych patient that wanted to fight me before and I de-escalated them and then they walked in and kind of ramped everything back up yeah. or, you know, somebody that just wasn't getting certain concepts with, you know, CHF versus COPD, for instance, you know, that we have to like stop and take some time and get them, you know, up to, up to par. And would you say that educating other people has made you a stronger paramedic? Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. it reinforces things. And also, you know, I've pretty much I learn things on every student that I've gotten, every orientee, because there's things that I have to look up, you know, even still, you know, just like a lot of the little minutiae stuff. I can make, get my way through a call, no problem, but, you know, those little extra details and stuff that I, that I put the extra effort in to get along the way, you know, just makes you a better provider. Sure. I couldn't wait to, to teach paramedic students because my um, preceptors were such huge role models for me when I went through paramedic school and they kind of picked me because they saw how my attitude was when I did things like the first EJ I ever got in the hospital. I basically ran out, you know, fist pumping and excited because this patient was awake and you don't usually do EJs on awake patients. Mm-hmm. And that was super exciting. And they were like, <laughs> Who are you? And when do you start your, you know, your ambulance rotations? Mm-hmm. We, we need your name. We're going to take you. And my paramedic rotations on the ambulance were fantastic. The, the, I think I just got really lucky with the two that picked me. And they were hilarious. They were so funny, both of them. <laughs> One of the first overdose calls that we had 
I got to put a nasal trumpet down, you know, uh, and uh, an NPA. And she was like, cool, throw down a second one. And I was like, what? We can do <laughs> We can do that? We can put a huge hose down both nostrils? Mm-hmm. This is the best thing I've ever done in my whole life. So I got to <laughs> got to do bilateral NPAs, which was, was really fun. Did you have any experiences like that? Well, it's for, you know, I... My my cloud in my career has had like some guys like I know that they've done like fourteen fifteen field births. Some people are trauma clouds. Some people sure. are cardiac clouds. I always get the psychs that want to fight. <laughs> I, it, it's I, and you know you just have to like start ramping them down. You know like just kind of deescalate the situation and everybody else is ramped up too because they're like let's get it on yeah. and it's like no I don't I don't want to I don't want to do this today. Like let's try not to fight if we don't have to. <laughs> like I don't want to restrain somebody today. This will be like three for three. Like I, I no three for three. Ooh, you were a psychic. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, did you ever get the chance to pull out taser barbs? Oh yeah, that uh, that is one of the most satisfying things for me. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but putting your fingers down and pulling that barb out is one of the best feelings ever. <laughs> and they're not happy about it, but oh no, yeah, <laughs> usually not. <laughs> and sometimes they're still fighting too. Yeah, no, it's true. Sometimes you know it's bad when you're rolling up and Petey has the spit mask on before you get there. You know, have you ever gotten assaulted? Well, yes, like they tried. They they tried. <laughs> when, you, when you have so much volume in, in one category, you get pretty good at figuring out like when people are doing the the microaggressions pretty quick. And you can kind of catch on that, okay, this is going to be, this person I can deescalate, this person we can't. We need to medicate or we need to do some type of intervention or I need to like just have one person distract them. I'll get everybody on the same page and we'll pounce. Like, you sure. know, so... I've been very fortunate that I'm kind of paranoid in that way that I, I think grandma's going to swing on me. You know? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yep. Then those grandmas swing hard, too. <laughs> so, like, you know, a lot of the a lot of these calls, like, they're pretty well, you know, they're pretty well handled by the time we actually go hands on. Like, everybody's on the same page. Or if it gets really crazy, you know, that's, you know, you kind of reevaluate things and try to figure out how that could have gone better. You know, like there was, I had a, a student on one call. We got a call for, is a sick, as a quote unquote sick person. And, you know, it was family, like this guy just got out of jail and he was jailhouse robbed, like ripped. And he just wanted to go to sleep. Like, so he took overdosed on his melatonin and his family freaked out and got worried and called us. And they showed us the SI text messages and stuff like that. And... You know, it's like, well, we can't not do anything yeah. at this point. And he didn't want to go, which, okay, fine. So called PD early. Um, and it's like, well, this is going to end up escalating. And eventually he decided he was tired of our, our presence and ended up reaching into his drawer. And it's like, oh, God, now oh, we know man. what's happening here. Yeah. Um, you know, loading pistol that he shouldn't have had to begin yeah. with. Um, but so, you know, we end up having to... To wrestle him and this guy like he's yoked like he's there's an engine company a rescue me and my partner and my student and he's winning and <laughs> not only that but now his family is jumping in because now they see us like attacking, a, attacking him, him. Right, basically so that you know was kind of a like i haven't been surprised like that in a while yeah um and you know we're calling you know the emergency code and everything on the radio and it's took pd a while to get there because they're so understaffed and yeah you know like by the time they got there he was medicated enough that he was like at least slightly more chill but even still like that's that could have gone any number of ways yeah that's a scary situation you know i was fortunate enough throughout my career that i haven't seen a brandished weapon yet and i don't even know what i would do in a situation like that like were you able to get the gun away from him or were you able to prevent him from getting the weapon in the first place we were able to get a, to get him disarmed and then get him on the ground and then as family was like pouncing on us too like we were taking care of them enough and kind of kicking the weapon away to where like it would take a couple extra seconds for them all to get to it sure you know my biggest worry was that somebody was going to come from another room with like a shotgun or something yeah, with another weapon <laughs> 
Oof. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's rough. That's scary. Did you guys debrief after that? Yeah, kind of. Like it was it was more just like thank God this didn't go south. Sure. Yeah, that that could have been bad. Um, I had a, a partner, and we were in the back of the ambulance, and uh, I don't even remember it. It was some sort of event. I don't remember exactly what it was, but there were a lot of drunk people. And we loaded the patient up, and I told her, like, let's just get out of here. It's getting crazy. You know, people are walking up and smacking the side of the ambulance. Like, let's just go. And she was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to crawl through the window so that I don't have to go outside. <laughs> yes, okay, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> I'm glad one of us can fit. Uh, <laughs> so she's like putting the vehicle into drive and telling me we're not going to be able to move very far because people are walking now in front of the ambulance, like intentionally trying to stop the ambulance. Oh, wow. I got to a point. If you see anything that is unsafe, I know it's not great. Cops aren't here. Run people over if we need to. Yeah. You know, if it is to that point. Yeah, they will move. And if they don't, they'll regret not moving, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so that can be pretty scary and i don't know if you remember but there was a a person um an ems provider not too long ago that ended up getting shot by uh, a patient who was having a seizure and he woke up from his seizure because his wife had called that called 911 because he was having a seizure and he woke up and there's a couple of people in his house that he doesn't recognize. So, yeah, he reached over, pulled the gun out, and shot the EMS provider without realizing that that person was there to help him. And that um, that prompted a lot of, I think, well-needed, um, I don't know, education and laws that helped help EMS providers in situations like that. Yeah, and it's unfortunate that that's the kind of thing is is common, but we just get lucky. In, in yeah. a lot of their, in a lot of the aspects, you know, like we'll get, when I was down in, in a rural County, um, the dispatch centers would send us kind of routinely. Um, it seemed like to the wrong address to do welfare checks. And, you know, like you see somebody crawling around, you know, up and over a fence or knocking on doors or, you know, shining flashlights in the house to see if there's somebody that's inside that's okay. I mean, what's any normal person going to expect? Yeah. Because they weren't the best areas of town either. No. (laughs) I think it's safe to say that we are, as EMT and EMS providers, put into a lot of unsafe situations. And I think Mm -hmm. most of of us are aware enough to realize if we're in a situation that we probably shouldn't be in. Yeah. And hopefully now at least there's a little bit more leeway on, like they're pushing a little bit harder in some of the local systems that's like, hey, if you guys really feel unsafe, because there's always the whole BSI scene safety thing. Sure. But with the caveat that you're going to get sued for abandonment or you're going to get in trouble for, you know, rejecting a call or something like that. I think now finally things are a little bit better where the the crews can be like, something's not right. We're going to come back after things have been verified a little bit. Yeah. So speaking of shootings, I know that you have your own personal experience with a shooting. Can you go ahead and uh, walk me through that? Yeah. Um, back in 2013, um, I decided to go hunting with uh, with somebody. And, you know, like coming from California, like I always wanted to go hunting. I always loved the woods. I always loved hiking and all the outdoor stuff. But in California, like hunting is like, oh, you're shooting Bambi. And poor Bambi, <laughs> you know, like it, there's a whole stigma behind it, and you know, it was just it, it wasn't possible. And then I moved to New Mexico, where you know, outdoors is like the thing, like yeah. that's what you do. This is part of life. This is you know, like you put food in your freezer for the rest of the year doing this, you mm-hmm. know, which really intrigued me. And you know, so I like researched it, like I usually do, and it's like, all right, let's do this. And I did not know this was your very first hunting trip. Yeah. Well, it was actually technically my second one. Okay. Because on my tag, the first the first time I went out, um, I didn't even see a ground squirrel. Oh, unfortunate. <laughs> you know, it's just the way it is, you know. Um, I'm sure if I went now, off season, there'd be like hundreds of deer oh, out I'm there. Oh, I'm sure. You know? <laughs> and hundreds of squirrels. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I, it was kind of a bus trip. And, and the, the guy that I, it was a friend of mine that I went hunting with... Um, he was on the first trip and he's like, you know, my dad's got a tag, you know, this next week. Why don't you come with us? And then, you know, we'll share the meat and whatever. 
Um, and it's like this area where I always get lucky, no big, you know, just come out with us. And it's like, yeah, cool. You know, like second opportunity. Yeah. You know, cause it was like, I had, I still had a great time. I was just hiking around the woods, you know, like that's kind of my jam. And so we went out, you know, the first day, like got to track a, a cow elk. We had a, a deer tag for that one. Um, tracked that and, you know, saw a coyote den and like all sorts of like nature. And it's like, I was like in heaven like yeah, i was having, having a, great, a time. great time um so you know next day started out like you know as cliche as it is like every other day yeah you know and uh we went and found our little spot that we we're gonna go hunting at and we hiked for a little while and you know all three of us and then we're like well this kind of sucks because we like went up this little hill there's this kind of buried pipeline that they had so the brush was all clear so it was a nice straight shot um just hiking up this hill and we're like, well, let's go back to the truck for lunch or breakfast or whatever. Um, we start walking back downhill, all three of us, and then deer comes up. Like, just like we literally like run into the thing. <laughs> you know, his dad's the one with the tag and the rifle. So he picks up his rifle and like nothing. I figured it was just too close because if you get too close when you have a scope on it, like you're not going to see anything except maybe a flea on the thing's butt. Sure. But that was, <laughs> you know, that's that was it. So, so in that chaos we kind of we got separated and i went back into into the brush and i see the deer and it's like maybe 25 feet away from me at most i'm looking at it it's looking at me and i was like oh hello yeah hi (laughs) (laughs) so i think i'm pretty sure that the guy with the tag is off to my right and I want you to run that way. So I'm going to go left. And I stepped right from, be, you know, from behind a bush that I was putting between me and the deer. Because, you know, you see the YouTube videos of some hunter getting his, his butt kicked by a deer. that Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. they can do that. Um, step from behind a bush and I hear this pop. And it's like, you know, and I feel like kind of in my stomach area that there, it's like somebody took like one of those like gravel pieces and just like threw it at me. And it was like, didn't feel anything other than that. It was just like, what was that? That's weird. And I'm like, hmm, something is starting to hurt. No, no, this, no, no, I can't, I did not just get shot. Like this, this is not happening. And it's like, oh, this, this is really starting to hurt now. Oh, geez. And his dad had a 270 and I'm like, I have the ballistics in my head, you know, like just like the trajectory where it, where it went in and where I feel the pain and like, okay, where's what's in between those two areas. And it's like, and I'm just like, I'm going to die right here. Cause we're like out in the middle of nowhere. And so I'm like, so I call out that I got shot and it's really starting to hurt. And how much time would you say was processed between the time that you realized that you got shot and the time you called out? I would probably say, realistically probably about 30 seconds 30 seconds that's all it took yeah because it really like you know you see in the movies you know like somebody gets shot they just drop because you know the little tiny half ounce little slug is enough to drop a grown man you know because that's the way hollywood works um so it doesn't really work that way like if i was in an actual situation like i probably could have closed some distance and hurt somebody that was shooting me you know like it does not drop you right away and you don't die right away either you know that it takes a while for you to bleed out so i went and i'm like okay like i need to stay calm because every heartbeat counts because if i'm bleeding out that's you know, so many mils of blood that I'm losing and I have to get to the hospital within like an hour, you know, that golden hour. So, you know, I, I call out and, you know, my friend comes up first and he's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm like, wait, what do you mean? What? What? Well, you shot me? Well, you just had a nine millimeter. Okay, I can do this. <laughs> my God, you are... <laughs> Be so calm about the whole thing. It's I guess it's good that you had that prior training to know like to not raise your heart rate. Yeah. Like I, I it was like I need to like this is not the time to be the nice guy. This is the time to make stuff happen. But then you also had the patience not to slug the guy when he walked up saying, I'm yeah. so sorry. Yeah. What well, you know when when you're dying, like 
your priorities kind of change. Yeah, like that's understandable. Like I'll get you on the back end, but sure. for right now, <laughs> I need you to get the truck up here. Yes. <laughs> That makes sense. So, <laughs> so you were telling him he needs to get the truck. Yeah. So, um, and I'm just like, I'm just going to lie right here for a little while. Like, and, and like his dad, like his dad walks up and he's like, what the heck happened? And like, he's like, I shot him. And like his dad literally does like the Homer and Bart Simpson things. Like, you're what? And like, <laughs> you know, steps over me and is like, you. And it's like, hey guys, can, can we have this family moment later? Like, I took clock's ticking. <laughs> yeah. So we get load, we get me loaded up into the into the truck and we start hauling butt down the the road and as you know as bumpy as as you know Gibson or Central would be and yes and you know we we coordinate like you know getting the helicopters landed in the Follies and you know just by sheer luck apparently according to the sheriff they just put a cell tower in that area like oh, wow. months before otherwise it was a dead zone Oof. so we got. EMS called and on the way and I had a paramedic on scene. Oh, that's good. And you know, we get to the we do the like, you know, kind of pull pull and shut down the highway type of thing once we run into the volleys and the, you know, they they start pulling me out of the of the truck and you know, start like, you know, back in the day with PHTLS, you have any type of hole to you know, to the center, you get a C collar and you get backboard and everything else and it's like we at that point we had changed things maybe for five years so i turned into one of those patients they tried throwing a collar on me and i was like nope nope. we are not doing this guys (laughs) and they're like whoa 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 whoa." i'm like no 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 no. this is old medicine like i'll come back and teach you the right way but like for right now this is not what we're doing and they're like well can you at least get on the backboard so we can get you out of the truck i'm like all right cool and then they're like well can you you know take off because i had all, all my hunting gear and everything on and like can you take it can you move or whatever and at this point like everything hurt because my belly was filling with blood and i'm like you know what just cut it off it's i know you guys want to just cut it off it's because they all were standing over me with their scissors and <laughs> trauma naked baby trauma naked <laughs> and it was funny too because it was like you know so it's like zip zips you know like they got me completely out within like no time looked for other holes and stuff like that and then i remember the look on their faces because it's like now what <laughs> and i'm like guys it's like i'm a trauma patient i'm bleeding out and it's 30 degrees how about we get me in the truck yeah. <laughs> oh good idea so like we loaded me up to the truck and you know i was still cognizant the whole time like i you know all the way to you know the, the whole thing because i'm like i'm going to stay awake this whole time like that's that's i just need to get to the hospital and i didn't know that i was really in trouble until the medics you know, did the IV and he was trying to put the tape on, but it wasn't sticking because my skin was all diaphoretic at that yeah. point. And I'm like, oh, this is what shock feels like. Didn't see that coming. Like, you know, like, because I'm like, you know, how does this whole process work? You know, like, this is a good case study for myself, you know, like what it feels like to be a trauma patient and everything. So once he finally pushed the fentanyl to kind of cut the pain down, I was like, okay, I can survive. This is all right. Like, we'll, we'll be all right. And then we took off and, you know, PHI landed and, and took me to to the trauma hospital that was in the area and you know i remember just like thinking like all right like once i got in the helicopters like i'm in god's hands now like i know that like i have the you know the best care from here to the hospital like i'm going to level one that's in the area like if it's meant to be it's meant to be so i'm just going to enjoy the flight sure because that's (laughs) what normal people do yes ed yes Jeez. So, you know, we I mean, were... I'm glad we can laugh about it now. Oh, I was laughing about it in the hospital. I'm it's... sure you were, but I'm glad that we can laugh about it now together, sitting down at the table. So, did you enjoy the flight? Yeah, the flight was very nice. Oh, good. You know, and, and, I, and I, like I know that it was a late call for that for that poor flight crew too, which I, I apologized for. And I'm like, but I was still like, hey, where are my vital signs? Yeah. <laughs> How am I doing? How, how he's, am I really he's like he's like no you're fine your vital signs are, are okay i was like okay cool so went down to trauma one and i remember like look just kind of like looking over at the gurney because i was like on my side because i was just the most comfortable place i could be and um it was like oh, okay i've run into that resident before like i'll be all right i didn't have any problems with them judging and, everybody as oh you're, absolutely as you're absolutely. rolling it's in like, making do, sure you know and do recognize I need, them do i need to stay awake <laughs> <laughs> 
And the last thing I kind of remember as I was fading out was just the, you know, some, the nurse called out. It was like, blood pressure 60 over, and then everything went black. Oh. And then kind of everything came back when we were running down the hall to surgery, um, which apparently I got like six units of blood just there. And uh, reading the notes in the surgical report and everything, I went to respiratory arrest. Like they literally got me there. Wow. Exactly in time to resuscitate me and get everything that they needed to go in and stop the bleeding. And from there, it was kind of spotty because like I went like, I was like, I went kayak septic and pneumonia and like all so the bad the stuff. the whole gamut of oh, stuff absolutely. afterwards. Wow. I think it's easy for, for us to forget as providers to the long term, you know, um, oh, that's crazy, man. Yeah. I was in the ICU for like 10 days or something like that. Wow. They did nine surgeries to like. Nine surgeries. Yeah. To put me back together and, you know, wash me out and all that stuff. And, um, you know, there was being on the ventilator for that long and stuff like that. Like, you know, I'd come in and out and like, I remember like, you know, waking up and it's like, I, the weird thing is, is that, uh, well, one thing that I was not aware of that at the time that I appreciate now is that not nearly enough providers have been patients because when you have the patient experience, it change it absolutely changes the way you do medicine, you know, where, uh, when I, I like, I was waking up, like I was fighting the entire time. Like I, they restrained me cause I, I was one of those patients. <laughs> um, like I had bruises on my, on my wrist for a long time because I was fighting the restraints so hard. Cause I knew wow. that there were those crummy little like posy restraint things. I'm like, I can break through these. No problem. Like, you know, like I'd wake up and it's like, I need to get to my wife. Like I need to tell her that I'm okay. Like I knew I was intubated. I knew that I was in the hospital. Like I was completely mentally cognizantly aware and just, I just need to tell my wife I'm okay, my wife at the time. And so hearing the other side of the story, like I was kicking, I was bucking the tube, I was clamping down on it, like I was biting it, like it was it was a whole show. And how long was it before your wife found out? It was, I called her from like when we were going to meet, like when we were on the way to oh, meet. Okay, it's like she, so she knew something was she up. She knew, okay. Yeah. And then from there, like she started, you know, making all the other phone calls and everything that... You know, even so, even before I got to the hospital, like all my family in California knew and everything. So, um, but yeah, so I got better. I got a little bit better after that. A little that, bit better. You know, and then, you know, the, the ICU psychosis, that's what they called it. I know what I saw. That kicked in. <laughs> it was all the good drugs, right? <laughs> well, at that point, it was a lack of good drugs. True. That's so, true. you know, that was, that was a whole nother thing because like, you know, like I, I never, I never done drugs, like street drugs or anything like that. Like, you know, I still haven't, you know, I just didn't interest me. I had a lot of other cool stuff to do. Um, so I went from like completely normal to now full blown, like hallucinations with like tactile sensory, like everything. Like it was my, my world was completely different. And, you know, the, the th like, the thing is, like, that was always one of my, like, my biggest fears, because I had, a, a, you know, my best friend growing up, he ended up getting, you know, bipolar, schizophrenic, then going through that, and it was just the whole idea of that kind of thing terrified me to no end, like, to not, to not be in control of your mind was absolutely terrifying, and now that was it, and... You know, of course, nobody believes you. I'm like, no, my room was on fire. Like, <laughs> and nobody's believing you. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, no. That... <laughs> you know. And, That's intense, man. And, you know, the funny thing was, like, you know, they're like, they sent the doctor in to try to convince me because, like, that's going to work. And I'm like, dude, I am conscious. I'm alert. I'm oriented. I know where I am. I know what I saw. And he just kind of, like, looks at me and, like, kind of, like, <sighs> and then walks away. <laughs> Were you still in restraints at that point or no? I, I was about ready to because like when, <laughs> when I thought my room was on fire, I was put like I, I still had a, like I was open. Yeah. My whole abdomen was like completely open. It was just like a tegaderm, like keeping everything inside. And I was just like taking station of like what I had. And it's like, all right. So I undid my G-tube, tucked that into my into my gown and was like, all right, I got a Foley. Don't want that thing to like rip out. And so I grabbed that, you know, it was like 
grab that. Get yourself then, ready to get up and oh, go. I, and then I was like popping off all my EKG stuff. Like I was, I, I was gonna go talk to the charge nurse for letting my room catch on fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that negotiation ended up not going well. Um, I'm sure it didn't. They <laughs> got security to come in and explain to me that nothing was going on. So I'm like, fine. <laughs> <laughs> went all the way up to security. You went. You were. You win this round. <laughs> That's uh, that's crazy, dude. I'm so sorry that you went through that experience. Uh, again, though, I'm glad that you're able to, you know, joke about it and talk about it so openly. Well, yeah. I mean, it, you know, honestly, it it opened my eyes to a lot of things. You know, being appreciative of life. You know, more than I was because you know I've I've had my bouts of of depression pretty significant in the past, and so you know, and things like, you know having this like imposter syndrome thing where it's like, you know, I'm not good enough to do this job or this job or whatever. And it's like, you know what, what's the worst that can happen? You know? So now like, going forward, that's your attitude. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And like within nine months of getting out of the hospital, I had, I was, I always wanted to do SWAT and TAC med. I had that job. I always wanted to fly. I had that job, you know, like it just, once you're not afraid to like, push forward and just like get rejected like sky's the limits like you can do anything at yeah. that point because the worst thing they can say is no and then no is a fantastic starting point it's like cool no but why you know it's like well you don't have enough experience so you get more experience or you don't have this cert so you get that cert you know like you know what you need to do to start paving your path at that point yeah and, and you don't fear it either that's really cool so how do you feel about like what what is your definition of PTSD? PTSD is is just basically to me at least is physiologically reliving past traumas. And would you say that you suffer from that? In in my own ways, yes. I don't think it's necessarily in the textbook ways cuz um you know, I had such a mental block for most of my career that you know, I would literally forget whole calls, whole days, you know, just I, they didn't deserve space in my brain, you sure. know, so they, they were just gone. So would you consider that a form of like repression or Probably. suppression? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, you know, to that aspect. Yeah. Um, you know, but the more you work on things and kind of sift out stuff in, in therapy and stuff like that, you kind of like, well, well, maybe that is, that is kind of a problem because before it was armor. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yes. For many years, right? Mm -hmm. It was that armor. If you could start in EMS all over again, would you? No, because there's so many other traumas that you can live through. <laughs> like, why, why, why relive through all this stuff? Like, you know, <laughs> it's like been there, done that, got the T-shirt, we're good. Like, I'm completely content. You know, there's other paths and stuff like that that you can do. That you know, it's not going to be without adversity. Sure. It's not always greener on the other side. No, no. You know, did everything that I've gone through so far shape the way that I do everything now? Hell yeah, absolutely. But I want a new episode. Yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> is there a, is there any advice that you would give to your younger self? Um, I'd probably tell my younger self that you know. You're good enough now. Don't wait until you feel ready to do anything. You know, there you there's always that that feeling of of discomfort is sometimes a good thing, you know, because it it makes you get out of your comfort zone and getting out of your comfort zone makes you study harder for something that you want or work a little bit harder at a job that's not that great but it's a stepping stone and seize every opportunity that you can. Because if you're constantly improving yourself, improving your skills, and giving yourself a good reputation as a hard worker, just showing up has been like 90% of the luck that I've had in my career. And you know, the only, the only thing was is that earlier on in my career, I didn't think I was good enough to do flight tactical. You know, I wasn't smart enough to do this or that. Just do it and figure it out later. No, that's great. 
I know you have to get to work, so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna cut us a little bit early. But I I really appreciate you coming out today, and I want to give you the opportunity if you have any charities or any groups that you want to talk about um, that you that you would like to promote. You know, there's there's a lot of groups that are out there that that we all utilize. Uh, for the most part, um, Mary Baca's groups, you know, allies for first responders, um, the PSPG folks, you know, basically any, there's a lot of resources that are out there for the first responder community. And I really think that it's important that we all kind of seek those opportunities that we have in this area, because, you know, I've been through therapy, you know, multiple therapists, over the course of my career. And there's a stark difference between ones that have dealt with EMS and are trained to deal with EMS and traumas and stuff like that. And the normal layperson that is the therapist, not that they're, there's anything wrong with them. They absolutely, you know, they have their certs, they have their education and everything, but they need to be able to walk through that dark humor with us and realize that no, this is not a suicidal ideation, or no, we're not really that crazy. We're just saying this kind of stuff to vent because that's the only way that we can get this out is in that gallows humor type of way. Yeah, you know, that and, all of us have. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's like you can't go through this and not have it. You know, yes. it's really you, you just can't. And you know, a lot of those folks that are in those groups, you know, they have a lot of experience with us. They know how to deal with us. You know, it's it, it's. The ones that I've that I've had interactions with are absolutely awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for coming out today, mm-hmm. Ed. I really enjoyed your your stories. They were great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for listening. Before we wrap up, we have a few important announcements to share with you. Firstly, we're excited to announce the launch of our brand new 911 Nonsense Facebook group page. It's a community where everyone can go to connect, share ideas, discuss topics from the show, and get all of the most recent updates about the podcast. We'd love to have you join us and be part of the conversation. Next, we want to ask you to rate and review our podcast on your preferred platform. Your feedback means the world to us and helps us reach a wider audience. By rating and reviewing the show, you'll be supporting us in a big way and helping others discover 911 nonsense. If you enjoy what we do and would like to support the podcast even further, we have a few options available. You can visit samspursuit.com to find the links to our 911 nonsense merch page and our recently released noon gear page. Every contribution, no matter the size, goes a long way in helping us continue to better the podcast. We know that not everyone is comfortable being on the podcast, but we still want to hear your stories and experiences. If you have a compelling story and would like to share it to be read by me in a future episode, please reach out to us via email at 911nonsense at gmail.com or through our website's contact section. If you choose to be anonymous, we'll make sure to respect your privacy while sharing your story in a way that resonates with our audience. Thank you again for tuning in. We truly appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more engaging content in the future. See you next week.